Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 125 and the final instalment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does help other people find us. While the podcast and all the content that's been shared over July and August is absolutely free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is an absolutely stunning portrait miniature of Catherine of Aragon, painted by Roland Hoy and a Tudor Queen's motto bracelet. A huge thank you to Roland and Shira for sponsoring this amazing prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway about their new book, the Berlins of Hever Castle. If you'd like to register for this event, please get in touch with me. Now, on to today's episode. I'm so excited that joining me on the show to talk about the Queen's Regnant Mary and Elizabeth is Carol Ann Lloyd. Carol Ann is a popular speaker, writer and new podcaster who brings the stories of history to life. She presents in-person and online programs for Smithsonian Associates, Royal Oak Foundation, Agecroft Hall, English Speaking Union and the Folger Shakespeare Library. She also speaks about how history can help us be more successful in our personal and professional lives. Carol Ann is a member of the National Speakers Association. She's the author of Building Relationships, One Conversation at a Time and an audible book, How to Build Meaningful Relationships Through Conversation. She demonstrates how Shakespeare is a great source for conversation skills in both of her books. Carol Ann recently launched a podcast called British History, Royals, Rebels and Romantics. She's currently working on a book about the Tudors. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Caroline. How are you? I'm very well, and I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm, I've been looking forward to our conversation. So let's begin by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Thank you. I have been pursuing a couple of different paths um, over the past few years, and lately they've come together. So I've been doing some speaking and facilitating in the world of professional communication, conversations, interpersonal communication, leadership, all those kinds of things, and uh, speaking and writing and studying history and Shakespeare. But recently, the two have come together. And so I'm doing a program on Mary the First, someone we'll be talking about today, and how her use of a right now plan can help us plan a post-pandemic return to work. So those kinds of things I'm able to do a bit more now as I bring these things together. I realize that history is all about right now and history shows us what's possible in our lives. And so it's been really exciting for me to bring those together. But perhaps more um, of interest to some of your audience members, I've been speaking about the Tudors and other bits of British history for the Smithsonian here in the States and H. Croft Hall, which is in Richmond, Virginia, Royal Oak around the United States, and participating in a lot of the um, new online national and international things the Smithsonian has been doing with their streaming program. So that's been really fun for me and recently started a podcast, British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. So I am fully immersed immersed in British history and just loving it. Fantastic. And I actually got to visit Agecroft Hall when I was in the States a few years back. It's so beautiful. It's such a sort of strange thing to find a, a piece of Tudor history just standing there. Right. No, it is, it is really wonderful. And I'm very excited because my first live in-person talk after all of this will be at Agecroft Hall this fall. And so I could not think of a better place to sort of return to the world of in-person speaking than in that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. So yeah. Absolutely. Now, as you mentioned, the topic for today's All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts discussion is actually Queens Regnant Mary and Elizabeth. So when did you first become interested in the lives of these Tudor half-sisters? Well, I must say I started with Elizabeth. And when I tell you how I'm dating myself a bit, it was in the Glenda Jackson BBC production, Elizabeth R. And I just thought she was such a compelling Elizabeth. And my child mind, somehow she was perhaps a reincarnation of Elizabeth or something. She just really seemed to me to be that queen. And then as I started, you know, doing more of my adult research and looking into it, I realized that Elizabeth wasn't the first crowned queen. In fact, she was the second. And we learn so much more when we look at them together in addition to separately. And I'm working on a project now um, called Tudors by the Numbers. And so I'm looking at some of the numbers in Tudor history. For example, 42% of the Tudor dynasty happened with a woman as monarch. 42% is quite an amazing yeah. number of years. You know, I mean, that's a big percentage of time. And of course, previously, there were no ruling women. I mean, no women had been crowned and ruled. So the idea that this dynasty changes that, because of course, after the Tudors, every sort of family dynasty we look at 
has at least one woman. The Stuarts have a woman, the Hanoverians have Victoria, and the Saxico Burgotas who become the Windsors have the queen. So they all have a queen after this, but the Tudors, these two half sisters started that. And I just think that's really kind of wonderful. And in fact, now, ironically, well, not just now, but they share a grave as well. So they ended their time on earth and now are sharing a space. And this is what it says on their tomb. It's only the beautiful effigy of Elizabeth. You don't see Mary, but it says partners both in throne and grave. Here we rest two sisters, Elizabeth and Mary, in the hope of one resurrection might be a bit optimistic. They didn't necessarily agree about the resurrection, but that idea of them being together, I think is quite powerful. Yes, I totally agree with you. And I think it does surprise people when they discover that they are in fact buried together. Although I believe that Elizabeth's on the top, I think, (laughs) (laughs) which would probably make her very happy, I would say. So, Caroline, what was their relationship like growing up? Obviously, there's quite an age gap between them. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's a complicated relationship. And when you think about it, from Mary's perspective, the very existence of Elizabeth, even before she was born, that pregnancy of Anne Boleyn's is what tipped Henry VIII into fully um, annulling the marriage to Catherine of Aragon and validating the marriage to Anne Boleyn and crowning Anne Boleyn. That ceremony, Anne is very pregnant in her coronation. And so the existence of that baby, who then became Elizabeth, was the thing that really ruined Mary's early life. Uh, so it's an interesting start to their relationship. However, less than three years later, Anne Boleyn had fallen from power. And now Elizabeth was sort of in the same boat. She was no longer a threat to Mary. In fact, she was the lesser of the sisters. And in that point, do you see Mary have a bit more of a nurturing relationship, sort of as an older sister, almost a a motherly relationship with Elizabeth. There's a lovely letter that Mary writes to Henry VIII telling him that he would be quite proud of Elizabeth and the progress she's making. So she seems to have that kind of relationship for a bit of time. But as they move into Edward's reign and their difference in religion becomes a greater problem. And particularly for Mary and Edward, actually, that religious difference really becomes a problem. But Mary and Elizabeth are split again during Edward's reign. So they really don't have much of a warm, friendly time. But there are those moments when Elizabeth is very young that Mary does seem to be taking care of her a bit. And it's a complicated relationship all along, yes. but there are those nice moments. <laughs> yeah, I often think there must have been some warm, caring moments just um, when you think about how things turned out in the end. You just think she must yes. have had some kind memories of her sister, I imagine. Right, um, right. So in 1553, Mary Tudor becomes the first anointed queen regnant of England. Now, before we go any further, can you just explain what this term queen regnant means? Yeah, so that basically means a queen who is ruling in her own right, rather than being married to the king. So she is not the consort of the king. She is a queen in her own right. So two previous women had been declared queen, Lady Jane Grey, who we'll get to in a moment, but also Matilda back in the 12th century had been declared queen. But neither of those two women had been crowned in Westminster and had actually ruled. So Mary is the first 
regnant queen who is crowned and has an opportunity to rule. And then Elizabeth, her half-sister, is the second. So after it not happening for hundreds and hundreds of years, bam, bam, two in a row. Quite amazing, isn't it? Now, it wasn't the smoothest of transitions for Mary to power. So can you tell us about some of those events leading up to Mary's coronation? Yes. When Edward was on the throne, he was a real advocate of religious reform. And we see the term Protestant, of course, meaning something quite different then than it does now, but that term being used for the first time during his reign. So he institutes the Books of Common Prayer, it's major reform, and is moving forward and planning for more and really barely allowing Mary to continue to even celebrate Mass on her own privately. He's really pushing for reform. So when he becomes ill in 1553 and realizes that he is not going to live, he does not want to live, leave the throne to his half-sister Mary because he knows she will undo all the work he has done, all the religious reform work he has done. So working with the president of the council, John Dudley, he comes up with this idea to create a devise or a new law for the succession that will override the third succession act that is on the books passed by parliament. So Edward Edward attempts to circumvent that with his device, he's looking for a male Protestant heir to leave the throne to. He discovers that it turns out the Tudors were not good at having sons. They were quite good at having daughters. So there are a number of female heirs for him to choose from, but he can't find a male heir. So initially he leaves the throne in this new way to the male heirs of Francis Brandon, the daughter of Henry VIII's sister Mary, and then Francis's daughters, their male heirs. But as his illness progresses, he realized there is not time for their, those male heirs to be born. So he leaves the throne to Lady Jane Grey and her male heirs. So when he dies, his death is actually covered up or, or withheld from the public for a few days. So he dies on the 6th of July. And on the 10th of July, much to everyone's surprise, Lady Jane Grey is proclaimed Queen of England. Now, everyone knew the act of succession said the throne would go to Mary. And so there are descriptions of the streets of London being sort of silent when these proclamations are read because people were so surprised. Well, that very same day, Mary, who has gotten word, she has so many supporters, she's gotten word that all this is happening. She sends a letter to London, to the council, stating that she is indeed queen. And so she stakes her claim for the throne. Now, right now, we know that Mary prevails. But in that moment of time, it really seemed like Lady Jane Grey was the one with the power. She was in London. She had the Privy Council. She helped the tower. She had all the munitions and all of the soldiers. And she really seemed to be the one more well staged to keep the throne. But the people rallied to Mary. She went to her holdings in Framlingham Castle and gathered supporters and they rallied to her. And as she marched to London, they rallied more and more so that by the time she enters, it is even close to London, it's clear to the Privy Council that she will prevail. And so they sort of fade away. Poor Lady Jane Grey is left there sort of alone now in the tower and did not seek this. She did not go after the throne. But there she is, sort of alone standing there. And interestingly, when Mary officially enters London 
after having been proclaimed queen. She's proclaimed queen on the 19th of July. This is in 1553. She enters London on the 3rd of August. And with her are two very important people, her half-sister Elizabeth. So she is bringing an heir with her at that time. Look, here I am and here's my heir kind of thing. But also Anne of Cleves, the fourth wife of Henry VIII. And so I believe Mary is sort of saying we're returning to the Tudors. This is Tudor time once more. And so Anne of Cleves, who lives almost for Mary's whole reign, interestingly enough, this wife of Henry VIII that we sort of forget just lived on and on, but also Elizabeth is with her. And in those moments, there appears to be some closeness between the two women because they enter London together. And then Elizabeth and Anne of Cleves again, both participate in Mary's coronation. So there is a bit of sisterly unity over those weeks of the entry and the coronation and all of the pageantry that is celebrated around that. I actually got goosebumps when you were talking about that. That is, that's a really moving scene, isn't it? I think for the two sisters Mm -hmm. to be together like that, considering their past. Mm -hmm. And it was a real Mm -hmm. statement legitimizing Elizabeth as well on Mary's part, wasn't it? Right. Which is really interesting because she doesn't always feel that way. (laughs) But in that moment, moment. she did. So it was, it is a wonderful, you like, you know, you just kind of like to hope that there were moments that they were happy together. So. Yes. And I think Anne, having Anne of Cleves there is really interesting because it's sort of like uh, asserting this is my family, you know, the, the yes. Tudor family. The and Tudor interestingly, as, yeah. Yeah, yes, the women, which is really, really powerful. But also I was thinking when you were talking about Anne of Cleves that, of course, she's buried in that very privileged position in Westminster Abbey, like no right. other one of Henry's yes. um, queen yes. consort. So that's really interesting, yes. too. Yes. When I saw that the first time, I was just sort of stopped in my tracks. I hadn't realized it until I saw that little tiny plaque. And then you think, wow, of all of them that she would end up there is quite remarkable. It really is remarkable. And if people haven't, you know, next time you're in Westminster Abbey, have a look there at the high altar towards the right when you're facing it. And she, Anna Cleves is there, which is quite quite amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the actual coronation ceremony and the celebrations that followed. But do we know very much about that? Well, there are some records, and this gives us a great opportunity to just mention, sometimes we think, oh, a contemporary record, that must mean it's 100% accurate, right? Because it's from the time. But of course, people in that time, just like people today, took records with their own agendas and their own ideas. Often it's a letter being written to somebody else who wants to hear about a particular thing. But we do have some really fun glimpses into the challenges of this being the first coronation for a woman. That was just never even considered. So when you look at this long history of coronations, one of the I think a bit amusing elements is part of the coronation ceremony is the appointment of new knights of the bath. And so the king to be the night before his coronation would participate in this ceremony. He wouldn't actually take a bath, but he would be in there while the knights were bathing. Well, certainly you can't have a woman do that. So of course, Mary had to send someone and that was fine. It was sort of easily solved. But I do think it's a good indication of the level of determination or the level of belief this would always be a male 
And so these, these traditions were just so baked into this always being a male. There was no thought of a ceremony for a regnant queen. So Mary's ceremony included some parts that were for the king or the monarch, and then some elements of a consort's coronation, which a woman would traditionally do. For example, according to some of the records, she processed to Westminster with her hair loose, hung loose down her back. That was something the consorts traditionally did. So she did that. She was crowned with St. Edward's crown. That was for the monarch. But when she held the orb, she held both the orb of state and the consorts orb. And then she held two scepters. And so there are records of her holding both the monarch and the consort <laughs> item sort of in her hands. At the moment, she really was sort of both to the people because they really weren't quite sure exactly how she fit in and exactly how this was going to go. But something I think really important to think about with Mary, some members of her Privy Council said, what we probably should do is wait until Parliament meets. And then Parliament can clarify your claim to the throne. Parliament can spell out what your rights and powers are, and then you can have the coronation. But traditionally, the coronation had always preceded the Parliament. And Mary realized that if she let Parliament meet first and proclaim her queen, then she got her authority from Parliament. And that's not what she wanted. That wasn't really the source of her authority. So she moved forward in what I consider is quite a brave way and had the coronation first, working through all these glitches and all these complications. And then Parliament, after the coronation, went back and clarified some things and spelled out by law that she had the same rights and the same powers as the previous monarchs. But she had the coronation first. And I just feel like that's a very important step where she wanted to fit right into the tradition of a monarch rather than wait for parliament to give her permission. Very clever decision on Mary's part, I think. And I imagine yes. Elizabeth watching everything and, you know, so, so intelligent, yes. just observing and absorbing <laughs> all those lessons that she would then, you right. know, master right. later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was thinking the other major lesson of their their joint entry into London and all that that happened with Lady Jane Grey and everything, I think they must have seen that it's all fantastic to be heir, but without the support of your subjects and the people, right. it is pretty much useless, isn't it? Right, right. And Jane Grey, really through no fault of her own, really was in an untenable position because she didn't have the support, exactly. the people just didn't know her, but both Mary and Elizabeth had that support. And yeah. yes, that makes all the difference. This was the first Queen Regnant. There was all these sort of things to sort out, all the details. So what were the general views at the time about women in power? And do we know what Mary herself thought about this subject? Let's start with some of the general. Um, that's a little easier to get at. There were a lot of anxieties throughout the 16th century and, of course, before about the idea of female rule, because everything now, remember, the people at this time were very religious and religion made it very clear the teachings, the religious teachings of the time that women were inferior to men. I mean, that was sort of baked in to the religion, to the society, to the politics, to the traditions that they lived by. And if you look at the notion of a monarch and you think about 
the coins, for example, that people might have seen of a monarch, the image is of a man on a horse with a sword that's usually on one side of the coin. You can't really tell who it is. The face is clear, but you see the man on the horse with the sword. And on the other side, there's, a, a, again, a man holding a scepter. And it reinforces this idea that this is what a monarch is. A monarch is a warrior and a monarch is a judge. And women couldn't be either of those things. So the notion of a woman as a monarch just didn't make sense to people. Now, Mary might have had a bit more imagination to envision that because her grandmother, Isabella of Castile, the mother of Catherine of Aragon, was a tremendous ruler in her own right. She inherited Castile, she fought for Castile, and she ruled Castile. Then Ferdinand ruled Aragon. They came together and created a larger kingdom. But when Isabella died, Castile didn't go to Ferdinand. It went to her children. And so Castile was hers. So there is this history in Mary's quite immediate family of a woman ruling. So it may have made more sense to Mary having this Spanish heritage than it had made to other people. People of England really hadn't experienced that. But Mary as well was eager to get married and have a man help her bear this burden. She really did believe that marriage was the way to share her burden and to do the right thing as a woman and as a queen. So that was important to her. And I think the the lessons for Elizabeth just continue, don't they? Because yes. <laughs> Mary, Mary, of course, marries Prince Philip of Spain yeah. in 1554. Yeah. So how was this marriage greeted? Like you've mentioned, of course, that most people would have assumed that she would have gotten married, of course. Then she chooses to marry Prince Philip. So how did the populace respond? Well, I think people did expect her to get married, and I think people assumed she would marry a Catholic. I think, I mean, she was always fairly upfront about her religion. And when, you know, Lady Jane Grey has those few days on the throne, we do see support for Mary among Catholics and Protestants early on. So, so she did have a lot of support, and Protestants, I'm sure, were expecting her to marry a Catholic, but they thought it would be an English Catholic. And so one of the problems with Philip of Spain is England really wanted to remain independent. And there was a fear that Spain and the whole Habsburg Empire might be looking to England to fund some of their wars or to provide troops for some of their wars. And so there was that potential issue of losing their national identity or losing some of their funds or some of their people in support of other wars, which doesn't mean everyone was opposed to it. It wasn't like that, but people were a little hesitant. And one of the concerns about that is it seemed that Mary was not adhering to the advice of her privy council as much as she was adhering to the advice of one counselor, Simon Renard, who was the emissary of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And there was, you know, is, is Charles V calling too many shots here? So a little bit of concern. On the other hand, throughout Europe, this marriage between Mary and Philip was widely publicized and was greeted with a lot of joy among 
the predominantly Catholic Europe. It was an opportunity to bring England back into the fold. So it was very popular on the continent and yet viewed with some concern in England, especially among Protestants who really did not want to become subsumed into the Holy Roman Empire. They just weren't on board for that. Yeah, I can understand some anxieties, of course. And some people weren't happy, unhappy enough, in fact, to to try and rebel. So can you tell us about the Wyatt Revolt and how this actually led to Princess Elizabeth's incarceration in the Tower? You know, this is a wonderful example of history and some of the ironies that are just built in that if you take a moment, you think, oh my goodness. So this is Thomas Wyatt, who was particularly concerned about Mary marrying, not just a Catholic, but a, but the Prince of Spain, the, the future King of Spain. That was just very um, concerning. This same Thomas Wyatt is the son of the Thomas Wyatt, who was an admirer of Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn. So that just that name must have caused some emotional response in Mary. I think when Wyatt stages a rebellion and it's that Wyatt family that liked Anne Boleyn, I just feel like that's a little bit of irony there. He wasn't the only one, the Duke of Suffolk and the Earl of Devon and Peter Carew, there were others who agreed that this was just not what they wanted for England. And so there was a plan to have some rebellions across the country. And of course, the problem is if you're going to have a big rebellion, you have to have a lot of people involved. But if you tell a lot of people your plans, the chances of getting found out, you know, getting found out just escalate and they got found out. So most of the rebellions were interrupted, but Wyatt went ahead and he raised an army and he is marching toward London. And Mary finds out and believes, Mary believes that the ultimate plan, the end game is to put Elizabeth on the throne. So Elizabeth immediately comes under suspicion because she is the Protestant half-sister. So of course, Protestants rebelling would want her on the throne. But Mary, instead of fleeing London as Wyatt approaches, Mary is very courageous and once again stands and speaks to her people, talks to them about how she is their queen and has the concern of a mother for them and she would never do anything that was not in their best interest and really rallies the citizens of London so that when Wyatt arrives, they don't rally to him. He was expecting a widespread, you know, swell. No, they don't come to him. Mary has prevailed. They stick with her. So he is arrested and put in the tower. Elizabeth is also arrested because she's implicated in Mary's mind and sent to the tower. Wyatt is actually instrumental in exonerating Elizabeth. I don't know that Mary ever really believed she was innocent, but Wyatt maintained that although perhaps he had planned to put Elizabeth on the throne, it was not with her agreement. She had not been any part of the rebellion. She didn't know anything about it. And even when he was facing death in a time when they believed when you're on the scaffold, yeah. moments later, you will be facing God and giving an account of your life. People really believed that. So one of the very last things he said before his death was to, again, declare that Elizabeth was innocent, which was very convincing to people. They really believed he would not do that on peril of his eternal soul. So Mary kind of had to accept that and Elizabeth's responses and they couldn't find any evidence. 
and release Elizabeth from the tower. But Mary had one final little gesture here. She released Elizabeth on the 19th of May in 1554, which is of course the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, which Elizabeth would have known, Mary would have known. It's just a final little send shivers down your spine, Elizabeth. I know. Yes, that's incredible. <laughs> I'm in charge. And just a reminder of how tenuous life is. Um, and I can just imagine Elizabeth that day when the guards come to the door thinking, oh, this is it, you know, and instead she's taken, she's held quietly in a, another house for a while, sort of under house arrest, but eventually she's released from that as well. But I would, I don't really see much closeness between the two sisters after this point, you know, once your half sisters put you in the tower. Yes. It's a bit hard to get back to a jury reunion. Exactly. That, and it must have, I don't think we can underestimate the trauma that must have had on young Elizabeth. Like not only was she released on the anniversary of her mom's execution, an obviously very clear message from Mary to right. say, I'm watching you, right? Yes. But, yes. but um, also being imprisoned in the same apartments. They were still the Queen's apartments at that time. Absolutely. They had not completely, they weren't... Um, Later, they became ruined, but they were still okay then. Right. So that whole right. event must have just brought up so many emotions yes. and, and memories yes. and things for Elizabeth. Right. And just the terror. You didn't usually come out of the tower alive. And this rebellion, the Wyatt Rebellion, is what finally pushed Mary into executing Lady Jane Grey and her husband. And so that scaffold was still up in the tower. So Elizabeth would have known that as well. Lady Jane Grey really wasn't guilty particularly of anything. She just represented an alternative. And Elizabeth herself was an alternative to Mary on the throne. And so all of these things must have been just terrifying for Elizabeth. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned the the notion of how important a good death was at this time and how powerful that testimony, yeah. you know, and I'm thinking of Anne's testimony as well towards the end of her life as well, how yeah. powerful that must have been and how people really would have believed what they had said. Right. Yes, yes, that was a moment when it was thought you really put everything else aside yeah. and really told your your most intimate truth. So so given this turbulent relationship, very up and down from, you know, the very get-go, why do you think that Mary still agreed to Elizabeth as her successor, even though I believe she never named her, did she? I think she just, it was just assumed right. that it was Elizabeth. Well, I think now certainly Mary tried as hard as just about anybody ever has to have an heir so that she could leave the throne to her own child but that did not happen. And that was very sad for her. And I, I think there were times that Mary really wished that she could leave the throne to someone else. But I, I believe there's a type of integrity in Mary and in her values and approach to life. She came to the throne reliant on that succession act that named her as Edward's heir. And that same Succession Act that is still on the books, she never had that reversed in any way. So that is still the act of succession in the law, names Elizabeth as the next heir. And I think Mary could not say, well, it only worked for me. It doesn't work for her too. I mean, I just think she was bound by that. That was what she used to come to the throne. She was 
Henry VIII's daughter, so was Elizabeth. I know there were times that Mary said things like Elizabeth might not have been Henry VIII's daughter. Oh, you look more like Mark Smeaton or Henry Norris or something. You know, there were those little jabs. But deep down, Mary knew she was Henry's daughter and she knew that that act proclaimed her next. So I do believe when they asked Mary, she simply said something like the throne should go to the next person. She did not use Elizabeth's name. (laughs) So, but it was clear that even without the name, Elizabeth was legally, according to law, the next heir to the throne. And that's what Mary basically agreed to. And Elizabeth's coronation takes place in Westminster Abbey on Sunday, 15th of January, 1559, against, I think, you know, incredible odds. And there must have been so many people amazed that she actually got there. So (laughs) considering that it's another queen regnant and that this is, of course, a new Protestant queen, were there any changes made to the rituals to cater for this? You know, it's really interesting because back when Mary was crowned, one of the outcomes of having your coronation before Parliament is you're crowned according to the laws that are on the books. So Mary was crowned as a Protestant, declared supreme head of the Church of England. She was given that title at her coronation even though that was something she didn't believe in. Interestingly, she did use that title a little bit before she gave it away um, to get some laws passed because that gave her some imperial rights that she used. In the same way, Elizabeth did not want to wait for Parliament. She learned that lesson from Mary and other monarchs who'd gone before. So she had her coronation before Parliament. In fact, one of her advisors, Nicholas Bacon, who was the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, is reported to have said, the English laws have long since pronounced that the crown once worn quite taketh away all defects whatsoever. So they went forward with the coronation, even though she was being crowned as a Catholic queen, because the Catholic laws were the ones in place. So what's funny is to look at who crowned Elizabeth. Well, should have been the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he had died. He was a great friend of Mary's and he had died the day after she did. And so he hadn't been replaced and he had been a great Catholic anyway, that might not have worked. Next in line would be the Archbishop of York, but he was an ardent Catholic and refused to crown Elizabeth. Then there's the Bishop of London, but Elizabeth didn't want him because he had been so active in the persecution of, quote, heretics for their beliefs. And so she didn't want to be associated with that. Then there was the Bishop of Winchester, but he was actually under arrest because since Elizabeth's proclamation as queen, he had been preaching against Protestants. So he was in jail. And so you just passed by all these people who weren't available or weren't all right to come down finally to a fairly low level Bishop Oglethorpe. Now, Elizabeth was not happy with him because when he had preached the Christmas service, he had elevated the host. And that was something that was offensive to her. She was fairly open-minded about a lot of the practices and didn't have the same fervor that Edward did about eliminating everything, but she did not allow for the elevation of the host. So she insisted that at her coronation in the mass that was said, and that was on the books, there would be a mass that he not elevate the host. Here's another time when the contemporary records don't agree. Some people say that he elevated the host and she walked out of her coronation. Not She didn't leave Westminster Abbey, but she walked to a different part of the Abbey. Some say that first she withdrew and then he elevated the host. And some people said he didn't elevate the host at all. But whatever happened, he did perform that ceremony. 
And it was, interestingly enough, the last coronation ever that included a Catholic mass. So the last English coronation that included a Catholic mass was for Elizabeth, who was, of course, not a Catholic queen. So sort of a bit of fun there. Elizabeth did use some of Mary's language and some, uh, she also wore her hair down. And in fact, she wore Mary's coronation robes altered to fit her, but she wore the same coronation robes. So there were a few modifications, but until Parliament met, she had to be crowned according to the laws of the land. So she was not crowned as supreme head of the church, even though that's something she would have been more comfortable with than Mary. And later, of course, Elizabeth changes that title somewhat and goes by supreme governor, because as a woman, people weren't really sure she should be quote, head of the church. But anyway, the, the changes in the pageantry around Elizabeth's coronation very much reinforced her Englishness. So as opposed to Mary, who had this, not just a Catholic husband, but a, a, and a Spanish husband, but a Catholic and a Spanish mother. So it is in the pageants around Elizabeth's coronation that Anne Boleyn actually reappears because she is acted out. You know, you have Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, and then you have Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, and then you have Elizabeth. And so she's the clear inheritor of that great English heritage. And so Anne Boleyn begins to emerge a little bit during Elizabeth's reign, which is, I think, very exciting. And you see a lot of little touches where Elizabeth really values her Boleyn relatives. And there's the ring she wears with the little image of Anne and some linen. One of my favorite things to look at in the Victorian Albert Museum are those linens of Elizabeth's where you can see the falcon of Anne Boleyn. So, you know, she does bring it back, but it starts with her coronation ceremonies when Anne Boleyn is brought back to really emphasize the Englishness. We're not going to have these Spaniards involved anymore. When I read the account of Elizabeth's coronation and saw the mention of, of Anne and Henry during that sort of family tree type mm -hmm. device that they um, had done, I was so excited. I was so thrilled. And I, what I would give to have been there to see the reaction of the people <laughs> yes, as they're watching, yes. like it must've been, you know, after so many years of obviously right not talking about her and I and just thinking as well about the similarities between Elizabeth wanting to emphasize her Englishness and mm -hmm. which is exactly the same thing that Anne did especially during difficult times she wanted to right. rid herself of the French identity and yes, make sure that right. she was seen as as totally English queen English yes right and that really was popular with the people they and having just gone through it with Mary again Elizabeth's learning from Mary and differentiating herself yeah absolutely early English queen early English queen that's right and and so she's crowned now she's queen of England so what are some of those challenges that Elizabeth faced at the beginning of her reign I'm just imagining her poor people going from you know one religion to another and and all these changes and and Oh, it must have been quite difficult. So what were some of the challenges she faced at this point? Well, I think that's part of it. The people have been through. So first of all, Henry VIII, and he, within his own reign, I think he must never have known which yeah. way that wind was going to blow. <laughs> I mean, he changed his mind over and over. And then Edward pushed so far into reform. And 
really wanted to affect and control the way not just people behaved, but people believed. And then Mary, the same. She really felt it was her mission in life to convert everyone to Catholicism and really get them to believe according to a particular set of values. So then Elizabeth comes and people are waiting to see what she will do. So she sort of steps into this country that has had a lot of turmoil, a lot of religious chaos and angst and worry. You know, people have been executed. The burnings are still a memory. And so what's she going to do about that? There are foreign threats because Elizabeth's England is not at that moment a particularly strong nation. There's also this young woman in France who's married to the Dauphin, the heir to the French throne, who claims the throne of England. And this is, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots. So with the full support of the French king, Henry II, Mary, Queen of Scots, claims the English throne. And then the very next year, when the French king, Henry II, dies and Francois and Mary become king and queen of France, they quarter their arms with the arms of England and their coin declares them king and queen of France, Scotland, England. And so there's this constant threat and poking by Mary, Queen of Scots. So the Catholics say, well, actually, maybe she would be, you know, we'd like her instead. So all of this is sort of reverberating around Elizabeth as she tries to set her own way. And when you look at her initial religious settlement, for example, she is more focused on behavior instead of beliefs. So unlike her half-brother or her half-sister in the previous two reigns, she is not trying to manage or force people's beliefs. She's just expecting a particular kind of behavior. So although she probably wasn't the one who said it, that famous statement of not wanting to make windows into men's souls really does describe her approach early on. Basically, if you followed the law, whatever you did in your home was up to you. If you were holding mass, just don't, you know, don't break the law kind of thing. Don't worry about your behavior. And so she tried to bring different factions together more than they had been during the previous two reigns. She's around, I think, 25 when she comes to the throne. So she's she's been around for a little while. She's obviously been watching and learning from her sister and her brother and her father. And But she still needs men to advise her. There's no way of getting right. around that. So right. who does she select? Who does she choose to be her kind of uh, main advisors at this point? Well, here's where we get a couple of really fabulous characters. And so the first is William Cecil, who has been with her during Mary's reign and helping her manage her estates. And in fact, Cecil was always also around during Edward's and even a little bit of Henry VIII's reign. So Cecil has been at court for a very long time. And one of the things Cecil was able to do is survive and do fine during Mary's reign. So even though he was one of Edward's advisors and he was a Protestant. Um, he and Mary got along okay. He didn't make trouble for Mary. She didn't make trouble for him, but he was Elizabeth's, I would say, main advisor. He was her principal secretary for years. He did hold other titles, but I think really he was the one who was involved in everything, in foreign affairs, in, in domestic affairs. 
when she heard that Mary had died and she was now the queen, Cecil was with her. And so he was the one that she, he was the first appointment she made. And when she made him principal secretary, she is reported to have asked him to tell her what she needed to hear, not just what she wanted to hear. So there are some accounts of arguments between them and shouting matches because he did. He told her what he thought and they would have terrible rows and he would leave for a while and then she would call him back. And so they didn't always agree, but he really was involved in every aspect. And in fact, um, one of the historians, I think it's Stephen Alford says, you really can't tell the story of Elizabeth without telling the story of Cecil because he was so involved in every aspect. He trained up his son, Robert, to take over for him. So as he became ill and toward the end of his life, he actually tried to retire a couple of times and Elizabeth said, no, I just can't do without you. So he lives until 1598. And I think his death, she was beginning to lose quite a few of her closest friends and advisors by then because she lived for so long, but that was a really devastating death for her on a personal level, but he had sort of raised up Robert. So he sort of took over. One of the things Cecil did was recruit another one of her famous advisors, Francis Walsingham. Now, Walsingham did officially hold the title of principal secretary for a while, but really he was her spy master, even though that was not an official title. <laughs> it was Walsingham who set up this amazing spy network. He trained agents. He sent them all over the continent. And it's often called the birth of modern espionage. His approach was just so thorough and fascinating. And of course, we know him best for being the one who sets things in motion to catch Mary, Queen of Scots, after she had come from France to Scotland and then had fled from Scotland to England and was the focal point of so many rebellions against Elizabeth. It was Walsingham who set up and was able to um, set up the Babington plot and capture the letters and have a code breaker, decipher them and all of that. So Walsingham was very important as well. And then sort of the third person I would mention, more of a personal Robert Dudley, who was probably the love of her life, but was also one of her main counselors and did weigh in and was given a lot of responsibilities, for example, during the time of the Spanish Armada. So during great challenges, he was someone that she turned to. And so these three men, William Cecil and then his son, Francis Walsingham and Robert Dudley really saw her through. Of course, there were others, but these were three of the key people who worked tirelessly to protect her and protect her reign through very turbulent times. We look back from the end and we know that she dies in her bed and at a, quite an advanced age that she's not assassinated and she's not forced from the throne, but that was not a guaranteed outcome by any means. And these men worked so hard, devoted their lives and quite frankly, their fortunes. She was not really known for paying them. <laughs> so they had to pay the spies themselves often or you know cover costs, but they wore out their lives in her service. And it's quite extraordinary their their degree of loyalty it really is quite extraordinary and i'm not a, a, an expert on mary queen of scots by any means but i i get a sense that one of the many things that led to her um downfall execution 
was that she didn't appear to have a core loyal group like Elizabeth did. did no, she? she really, she really didn't. And she didn't seem to take counsel from those who were around her. She, she wasn't as good at selecting the right men to give her advice. And then she tended not to take it. So I think that's true. I think Elizabeth really, that core group around her and their level of devotion to her really is a key factor in Elizabeth's success. Yes. And as a ruler, do you think Elizabeth bore any resemblance to her father, Henry VIII? Well, I do. I think they both had quite a pragmatic approach, for example, to religion. Henry used religion, not that he wasn't personally a believer, so I'm not questioning his beliefs, but in terms of the function of religion, he often used it to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And Elizabeth too, I think, saw religion more as something for a ruler to use, whereas Edward and Mary were driven by their religious beliefs. I think Elizabeth was more like her father in that way. One of the really fun ways that I think Elizabeth was like her father is in her comparisons, both she did it, and I think she encouraged others to do it, to compare her to biblical rulers. So Henry VIII in, you know, if you were to ask Henry VIII, did you start the Church of England? He would say, oh no, I restored England to its original religion before the Pope got involved and messed things up. So Henry really saw himself as very aligned with the great biblical rulers and he commissioned the Abraham tapestries for Hampton Court and just kind of connected. And he loved to be compared to David and Solomon. Well, we see that with Elizabeth, although she is compared to female figures, to Esther or to Deborah in the Bible, she is also compared to David and to Solomon and to these wise rulers in the Bible. So I have to just tell you a quick personal story. A few years ago, I had the wonderful opportunity to visit Much Haddam, this lovely little town, and go to the Forge Museum where they have beautiful Elizabethan wall paintings, just exquisite. And one of them, and my dear friend, Brigitte Webster, took me there and arranged with the person who runs the museum to let me see these. They're not just available all the time because of course they're being preserved, but Elizabeth is actually painted as Solomon. So she is sitting on a throne. She is painted in male clothing. Now she's painted in Elizabethan male clothing rather than biblical male clothing. So it's this very strange kind of visual. So she looks like an English courtier, but she's painted as Solomon. And so then there's a judge and he's holding up the baby and there are the two mothers pleading. So it's that classic Solomon scene and she is about to display her wisdom. And this was something that was very appealing to Elizabeth to sort of be cast in this function, just like her father of these wise biblical kings. So I think that's a fun connection yeah. with her father, <laughs> you know, and Solomon. And if you ever get a chance, this is a just a delightful little visit. But I also think that Elizabeth looked back to her mother a little bit as well. Now I know she was very, very young when her mother was executed, but she did have people around her who had known Anne Boleyn. And so I believe she would have had access to some stories. But one of the challenges Elizabeth faced 
as any female monarch would have in a court full of male counselors. All of the people in government were men, you know, and she's telling them what to do. And how can they possibly take direction from a woman? Because she is not their superior. She is the inferior. And so Elizabeth sets up a bit of courtly love for her male counsel and the men around her at court, where she is the recipient of their devotion in the same way that Anne Boleyn did a little bit, where she was sort of the center of attention and the center of male devotion. Now, of course, we know that Anne Boleyn overplayed that just a little bit at the end, but of course, there's also the Henry VIII problem there. Elizabeth didn't have that challenge. So as the center of courtly love, she was able to give direction and ask these men to do things in a way that didn't challenge them in the same way it would have if she had simply been, I'm the queen, I'm telling you what to do. Now, she did that as well sometimes, but she did play the game sometimes to get what she wanted. So I think she leaned into both her father and some of what worked for him and her mother. And I really like that idea of Elizabeth as sort of combining both. Now, Elizabeth is said to have once said, to be a king and wear a crown is more glorious to them that see it than it is a pleasure to them that bear it. So what do you think she meant by this? Well, that that reminds me of something she's supposed to have said when she's talking about Mary, Queen of Scots. And she said, oh, I wish we could have both just been milkmaids on the hill with pails on our arms. You know, that would have been a more wonderful life. So, of course, she loved being queen. But at the same time, there was this relentless need to be on guard. There were threats all the time. She knew her court was full of spies. She said, a thousand eyes, watch all I do. She knew people were watching her all the time. There were people within the country trying to take her down. There were people abroad. There were problems with France or problems with Spain or problems with the Habsburg Empire. It was just happening all the time. And she had seen how hard For example, Mary tried really hard to do all the right things, but I'm glad that a lot of the new research were appreciating Mary the first a lot more, and we're seeing a lot of success in what she did that we may have been overlooking in the past. But it's hard to really say that Mary was a happy woman as queen. I mean, it was a very taxing thing. And Lady Jane Grey, I mean, wearing the crown was just difficult, much more difficult than people realized. And, you know, if you think of Elizabeth, she reigned for 45 years. So that's almost two thirds of her life where someone is always out to get her. (laughs) You know, someone's always working against her. Someone's always saying someone else would be a better monarch. There are challenges all the time. So I think it's just the relentless need to be on guard all the time. That must have been very difficult. And so it would have seemed better from the outside than it really was to experience. And Lady Jane Grey said something similar when she was told she had to take off her royal robes. And she said, I'm taking them off much more readily and willingly than I put them on. And that was over a very short period of time. So I think it just was a very difficult thing. It must have been incredibly exhausting. And as you mentioned before, you know, we know that she lived a long time and and was not assassinated in the end, but she must have just, that must have been such a concern, a daily concern, which must have been physically and mentally just exhausting and draining. 
and the ways, you know, someone had to try in her clothes because there could be poison in her clothes or poison in her gloves, as well as poison in her food. You know, it was just everywhere. Everything was a danger. And that must have just been exhausting. Yes. So, I feel exhausted yes. just thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> Carolyn, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. There is one more thing that I would like to ask you. And I've been asking all my guests during this series, and that's for a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So something for our listeners to explore after the show, something perhaps to, to nurture their love of Tudor history or, or to learn about queenship. Do you have a takeaway for us? Well, I have, I have a, a fun one and a serious one. So right. I'll mention the fun one first, which is the musical six that I know is reopening. I was lucky enough to get to see it in London. And then in the very short time it was playing in New York before everything closed down. It is not a history lesson. Well, one of the things I love is it's very deliberately not a history lesson. It doesn't sort of pretend to be, but you still go away with a different sense of some of those women than you might've thought before. So great fun. On a more serious note, one of my favorite books about this time period is Alice Hunt's the drama of coronation. And it looks at the Tudor coronations. And so we think, oh yes, okay, I know about that. Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward, Elizabeth, Mary. I mean, Mary Elizabeth. But she also points out there were two others. There were in fact seven Tudor coronations because Elizabeth of York and Anne Boleyn were both crowned separately. And by isolating and looking at those two coronations as well as the monarchs, it's just such an enlightening way to consider what was going on during this time. And I've just loved going back to it and back to it. I'm always finding something new. So that has been something that I have really enjoyed. And then I don't know how long everyone will keep doing these online programs, but I know um, Historic Royal Palaces has done some wonderful things through the pandemic. So just check out all of those of your favorite places, Society of Antiquaries, all kinds of places have been doing some online. Don't know how long it will continue. I hope for a really long time for those of us who don't live in England and to have to experience these in other ways. I I hope they continue because they've been wonderful. Exactly. That has been one of the positive things, hasn't it? All this online yes. material that we've had and, and connecting us all regardless of where we live. Yes. And I just want to say for any of my Australian listeners that Six the Musical is actually touring here again. So the second oh, half, wonderful. it will soon actually towards the end of this year and next year as well. So to go oh, and have a look at that because that I've seen it as well. I was lucky to see it at the Opera House and it was just so much fun. You just have to leave that kind of historian hat, don't you? And just enjoy right. it. Yes, but you can really enjoy it. It just yeah. really oh. is such great fun. It was fun. I even had my husband up and dancing, so it was all good. <laughs> Oh, and, and just on your second takeaway, just if anyone's interested to, to go a little bit deeper into that as well, I actually spoke to Alice last year when I did the All Things Berlin. So there oh, is an wow. episode about coronations with Alice Hunt, and it was absolutely brilliant. She's, she was so insightful, and, and there was a lot there that I think people probably haven't thought of or just didn't know. So it's really interesting. So if you have time, go off and listen to that episode as well. And Caroline, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for making time Thank to talk to you with us. I'm just so excited. It has been the highlight for me to be looking forward to this and thinking about it. So thank you so much for having me. What a treat. Thank you. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.